And we started this series two weeks ago called Creed, and part of the reason that we wanted to um, teach on this, and a big reason really, is just that this generation and kind of culture in general is biblically illiterate or just not aware of what Scripture says. And so we wanted to um, really kind of lay out, hey, here's who we are and what we believe, and here's why millions of believers over the centuries have adopted these really core beliefs that define who we are and what our faith is. And so for the first couple weeks, we talked about how this generation, like I said, is kind of in the dark and confused somewhat. And in many cases, we're slowly adapting beliefs and practices that simply are not biblical. And so culture has changed in a lot of ways. For centuries, some of the most learned and educated would, um, would debate theology. And so it wouldn't be unusual in a, in a tavern in Europe for um, people to be sitting back with their pipe and discussing like the nature of God and the Trinity. And, and does God like emanate, you know, does Jesus emanate from the Father? There's all these, you know, nuances and these theological discussions that were happening. And that has I mean, that's just not the case anymore. Like now, if we go into a typical coffee shop, there may be discussion about political things, but in general, theology probably isn't what's on the forefront of people's minds. So things have changed. Um, <clears throat> even culturally, Scripture uh, informed public policy in a lot of ways, um, discussing biblical principles or people having a biblical worldview like that informed culture and law and those types of things. Whereas now today, we tend to kind of just pick and choose and assemble our own personal theology, whatever that is, and, and usually it's important to cut, just keep that private. And so it doesn't really become part of the public discourse. And so one of the I mean, just one of the great ways for us to begin learning about God and kind of fettering out, well, what do I believe is publicly just talking about it with friends, but that doesn't happen as much anymore. And so, um, we want to talk about this morning that one of the primary vehicles that God uses to make change in our lives. And sadly, an increasing percentage of American Christians are actually being mentored and informed more by culture than by Scripture, okay? So we're being conformed in a number of ways, but it's not conformed to the Word of God. And so in Romans 12, 2, it says this, do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, His good, pleasing, and perfect will. So part of the, re the wisdom of this verse to me is that I feel like it acknowledges that without our minds being renewed, we will be conformed to the thinking patterns of this world. And that leads to confusion, 
and folly, as Scripture calls it, insecurity, and in the end, really despair. There's a quote, probably many of you have heard it before, if we don't believe in something, we will fall for anything. And so it happens insidiously and quietly, and soon we find ourselves really distant from the truth of God. So it's not like we just stay on empty. We will be mentored and influenced if we don't allow God's truth to imprint us. It really does influence us. As we've discussed recently, even those who call themselves Jesus followers spend very little time in the primary vehicle that God has set up for us to make progress, and that's His Word. This is a vehicle for us to make spiritual progress. And so, um, Jesus, who is our example, managed in His time to live above, like, live above the influence of the culture of His time. I mean, there was a lot that was going on. There were hypocritical religious leaders. There were all kinds of religious ideas. There's tons of things that were floating around at that time. And he was able, in the midst of that confusion, to live above it and instead influence the culture around him. Like, it was the opposite. Instead of being influenced by culture, he was the one that influenced. And we still, obviously today feel the impact of his influence. So, how did he do that? Well, when the world was kind of living crazy then, and I would say even now, and was it adopting anything that kind of came down the pike, falling in love with religion and the praise from the men that, um, that lead that, at least back then, Jesus was determined and he was unwavering because he allowed God's words to mentor and to mold him, okay? He relied on them. And so most of us can remember the, the time when Jesus was alone with Satan, and Satan tempts him in the desert. And how does he respond? He immediately draws on the word to combat the deception and the temptation that his enemy is offering him. And so remember how he started, like whenever Satan would propose something to him and twist the Scripture in some way, quote it to him, manipulate it a little bit, he would respond with, it is written. It is written. So in a time of deep temptation and even a lack of strength, he was human also, and so without food, he's being offered that he relied heavily at that point, not on his own feelings, like what would have been best, like, man, a little bread right now would really be helpful. Not on his own understanding at that point, at a point of weakness, but he relied on God's truth. So it wasn't just trusting his word, but also on top of that, he would obey his word in the midst of really difficult times. And so, a lot of what we struggle with, honestly, is the fact that we just don't trust 
the things that Jesus just assumed in a lot of ways, okay? He just automatically assumed, this is true, this is God's Word, it's written, and I'm going to bank on it. And for us, I mean, that is a great example, and we might even say, well, like, well, yeah, Jesus, you know, you're, you're part of the team that authored this whole thing, so easy for you to believe. But what a great example that in the midst of major struggle, that he responds with, it is written. And there have been a few times in my life when I feel like that's all I've had, is to just say, I know that it is written and this is true. Times have changed. I would say over the last 30 years, I've been a believer for, I don't know, something like that, 28 years, 30 years. And I admit, when I first became a Christian, and maybe this was just the church that I was involved in, but I knew almost nobody that didn't regularly read their Bible, memorize Scripture, and devour books about Scripture. Like, that was the norm. And I am not trying to shame any of us at all. I'm just saying that I personally have noticed that that was the rule, and now I would say it's kind of the exception. And I just don't think we're better off for it. I don't think we are. I think we have less wisdom, less maturity, more consequences, more struggles, less peace. There's a number of things that I think are a result of that. And so I want to discuss a little bit about the intricacies and kind of the claims that Scripture makes. And so we're going to start in 2 Timothy 3, 16 through 17. All Scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness, so that the servant of God, us, may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. So this verse is telling us that what we have in our Bibles right here is the actual words and breath of God. We have in our possession the very attitudes, stories, perspectives, and commands of our Creator. That is priceless. What a gift that we have in that. And when we look at this, the various roles that God's Word can fill for us, like it's incredible. Just looking at 2 Timothy here, that the Word can teach us, that God's Word can rebuke us and discipline us, which we need, that God can use it to correct and train us like a coach. A coach, though, not that is wanting to scream and yell and rub our nose in our mistakes and make um, and mock us, but one that loves us and wants the best for us. And then God can use His Word to train our minds and our hearts, like to make godly decisions, thoroughly equipped, training in righteousness. 
And we have this. So this vehicle is incredible. And where does it drop, drop us off? Like, where does the vehicle, like, as it takes us further down the road and safely, look at the effect that it has in verse 17. So that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. Thoroughly equipped. In other words, it contains what we need to be ready and prepared to live for and follow Jesus. The beginning of the verse says, breathed out. Um, scholars would argue that this is where we get the word inspired, that it's of divine origin, but what does that really mean? And so Christians, like over the centuries, have disagreed on that. And some have said, like, well, does that mean the New Testament, that that's inspired by God, that's His words, or, or the Old Testament, or both of those? And what about, like, you know, the book of Jonah, which has this really wild story in, like, all of it? You know, like, Jesus' words, like, maybe those for sure, but Paul words, Paul's words too? And does that mean everything that Paul says? Like, what about when Paul is talking about sex or gender roles or controversial issues? You know, then there are certain times when all of a sudden it's like, oh, I don't know. Do I want to take that at face value? And so this is where we can get into trouble really easily. And I would say that in general, the church has walked down this road in a lot of ways, that a lot of those that would say they follow Jesus are not in agreement with the beginning of that verse, that all Scripture is God-breathed and inspired and useful. They might not say all of it. And I think that's part of the mentoring of this culture that we've bought that lie. Some have bought the lie that there's nothing really special about the Bible. It's got some decent wisdom, some helpful anecdotes, but there is no God. Those aren't His words. It's just a human book by human authors. Well, when we look at Jesus, the most influential human ever, did He agree with that? Absolutely not. Absolutely not. He treated all of it, all of it, as if it proceeded from the mouth of God because he knew it had. So we hold to the creed of the early followers of Jesus that Scripture is God moving humans along and inspiring them to communicate his truth in their language. It was His truth in their language. We do not have any reference or instance where Jesus says, well, that event, that event that you're discussing here, that biblical thing, that was just symbolic or allegorical. It certainly wasn't meant to be taken literally. We don't have any instances of Jesus talking like that. Instead, He affirms these events' veracity, and He speaks exactly as if each event happened exactly the way it was communicated. He always affirms the events from the Old Testament that we read about in the Torah, in the first five books. Now, I want to talk a little bit about how we got so far away, just so you know maybe some of the roots. Um, 
this thinking that Scripture, like, it might be inspired, there's parts that aren't, it started of all places where? Seminaries, theological schools, okay? Um, some would say, like, really the impetus of this movement that started to spread across seminaries in the United States was birthed in German theology schools. Some would say the Wellhausen School of Theology was kind of like maybe responsible for a lot of it that started to feel that the events of Scripture, they're helpful stories, but they're not to be taken literally, okay? How many here have heard of the Jesus Seminar? Okay, some of us? All right. Jesus Seminar was really popular about 15 years ago, 15, 20 years ago maybe. And this was a group of scholars who got together and basically they were looking at Scripture and, and trying to determine what really happened and what we could really trust in. And they all voted and they used this hopper to kind of vote on each verse and everything. And they came down to just seven sentences that Jesus might have said. That's it. Nothing else was trustworthy. In fact, if you asked them, they would say, I remember one of them responding to say, no, I, I'm a Christian. I believe in the resurrection. And what he meant to say, or I shouldn't say what he meant to say, this is what he said as he kind of described that. He said, no, I'm not saying he actually physically rose from the dead. Rather, when we connect with Jesus, it makes us feel like we have new life. And it's really more of kind of this allegorical thing, kind of like springtime comes and new life comes, and we're just kind of connecting with that feel. That's what it is. And so he said, yes, I believe in the resurrection. Very different than what the early believers when they said they believed in the resurrection. It was a bodily, physical resurrection. That's why it's part of the creed. You'll see that if you, if you see the major creeds and even like statements of faith. You'll see the, some of those clarifications at times where it'll say, it'll say Jesus rose from the dead physically, bodily, because that was some of that influence that, well, it was just kind of this vision of hope that they would have. And so it felt like resurrection and, and new life. Um, but that's not what the early believers taught. That's not what they died for. That's not what they got in trouble for. They got in trouble because they were teaching this physical, bodily resurrection. So the roots of that skepticism started kind of in Europe, made its way over here. And a little segue here, just a side note, um, I might add that African Christianity did not um, buy into kind of the self-prescribed cultural elites that Scripture can't be trusted. They held on to it. It's really interesting. I, I read a great book on this a while ago um, by a guy named Tony Evans, um, he was the first black graduate from Dallas Theological Seminary, and he discusses, he's one of my favorite Bible teachers, and it's a book called Let's Get to Know Each Other. 
And he was talking about how there was that move to let's question everything in Scripture and how the African church was much more like willing to hold on to Scripture as God's Word. And that that was really important. Like, we are not going to allow culture to determine. Like, we aren't going to be molded by culture. We're going to trust in God's Word. Now, I've noticed some interesting things personally. This is just for me. Most of our friends, kids, are black. Okay? Most of them. You see a picture of us hanging out with a bunch of kids in our... In our house, we're like the only white kids, all right? Um, I would say, this is one thing I've noticed, their parents, and especially the, the, the kids, are really respectful to me because I'm a pastor. Like, when they find that out, um, their parents, their grandparents, like, they want to talk about it, they are drawn to that. And there is a deep respect, and they don't even really know me yet, okay? Now, um, I would say that with some of the white families, on the other hand, most of them could care less that if I was a pastor. Just kind of like, oh, okay, you know, or let's change the subject really quickly, you know? Um, If anything, sometimes, and, and this isn't everybody, okay? I'm not, I don't want to do this complete broad stroke, but I feel more like they're skeptical or they're quick to judge and dislike me or whatever, but it's, you feel that a little bit. And so there's this cultural underpinning that the African-American culture appreciates and reveres God. And so that's why we see rappers and others, like you think, wait, you sing about some stuff that's not all that good, but you immediately reference God It's because in their families, there was usually like this family member that walked the walk, talked the talk, and they were the glue that held the family together. And so, they have deep respect for those that follow Jesus in today's culture. And I've seen that. And let me tell you today, in in America's public schools. As a teacher, if you put up a Bible verse in your class, you could very easily get in trouble, right? Go do that at Jones High School or Evans right here in Orlando. Nobody is going to bust you for it. Jesus is welcome in a lot of predominantly black schools. Just a, okay, and this is not pitting one against the other. Okay, I want to be really careful with that. It's not one is better, that we both have our strengths and our weaknesses, and even that is not biblical, that there's white and black. I mean, God came to save all, period. We're all under the same roof. That's all there is to it. But it's just interesting that the way they viewed Scripture and its authority has really influenced how they think about God and how we think about God. And so that question, like authority, is really, really important, all right? Back to the resurrection. 
like I said, a Jesus, Jesus' physical body came to life. That's what they preached. That's what they lived. Also, that there will, that we will, we will be given new bodies, like glorified bodies, as Scripture tells us. And it's interesting that later um, this placard was found that said, and it was from Pilate, tampering with a dead body would incur the death penalty. And so it wasn't this visionary apparition type thing that they saw, but there was this physical, that was the issue. Signs like that don't get made if the disciples were just preaching a resurrection vision. It's because the body was gone. So, as we said earlier, Jesus lived and taught that we live by the Word of God, and He voices it that way. There's one time, and of all places, where does this happen? Again, back to that scenario we talked about earlier. Satan tries to twist and turn God's Word as they're alone together in this desert. He twists Scripture. He offers Jesus food in His isolation and His hunger. Jesus replies with, it is written... What? Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. I love this because Jesus reminds Satan that life is sustained by the Word of God. And he's relying on God's truth right there in the moment also. So it's a future reference and it's a right in the moment reference for Jesus right there too right now. Oh yeah, you're tempting me with food? Well, I'm going to tell you. It's written, I have a food that fills me up and I live on that. The Word of God is what is really going to sustain us when life hits the fan too. Or for life to be lived for what God really intended. Jesus knew that we just had to live on it. We would have to feast on it. It has to be our sustenance. And like I said earlier, there will be times in our lives when the Word of God is all we have. Like nothing else works. Nothing else is available. All, of, all other options have been exhausted and we are at the end. Unfortunately, that might be for some of us the first time we really lean into God's truth, but like we can lean into it right now before the desperation hits. He'll be there then too, but we can lean into it right now. So when considering Scripture and its inspiration, the early Jesus, Jesus followers had to delineate and put a stake in the ground here also when it came to this inspiration of Scripture, because just like today, there was a number of documents that were surfacing and claiming to be the Word of God, and so they had to be wise. They had to develop kind of a stringent test to keep them also from being led astray. There were Gospels that were popping up, the Gospel of this guy and that guy. Um, they're all trying to build a movement, and so... Um, just like today, we have to be careful because there's some weird stuff out there that's supposed to pass as Christian. There's lots of Gospels 
that are out there even now, okay? And so they needed to really, you know, kind of pin this down. So they affirmed Scripture's authority based on a number of factors. There's a term that, um, that what I've heard was kind of thrown, allowed, thrown out a lot, and that is, if in doubt, throw it out. Okay, a common phrase. And so when they were looking at Scripture and the literature they had, they asked themselves, is what we're reading accurate? Like, are there mistakes? Are there inconsistencies? And if there are, we're going to remove it. Another thing, does it claim to be the words of God? Or is it written like, well, I'm not really sure about all of this, and I might be off, but this is the best that I can remember. There is a book that that's the way it's communicated. It's like, you know what? Probably not God's Word. He even makes it clear that I'm not even sure if I've remembered all this correctly. Was it from an eyewitness, someone that walked with Jesus? If so, it was given much more consideration. Was it life-changing? Was it powerful and life-giving? Does it have power to uncover our hearts and heal our wounds? Was it consistent with other sources? Could it be corroborated? In other words, was it reliable? Was it understandable and consistent in its theology? And then last, was it timeless? In other words, did it discuss principles that could stand the test of time? Or was it just that scenario only? So all these factors taken together affirmed whether this was the Word of God. Then we have this other piece of archaeology. I just have a couple more things here. Interestingly, no piece of archaeology that has been unearthed has refuted Scripture. Instead, what's happened is it's affirmed its veracity. And so biblical archaeology is, I mean, it is an exciting field. Anybody here been to Israel? You guys? Oh, awesome. These are some friends from Wright State H2O who just snuck in. Yeah, late. I mean, that's college. We're college, right? It's college ministry. We should have known. Right. Everyone over here was like, yeah, that's us. So, I, I really want to go to Israel. Man, every time I hear of people that have done that. But they get and have had the opportunity to see the archaeological support for the events described in Scripture. And if it's true, we should expect to unearth, like archaeology, we should unearth things that support Scripture. Now, if I grew up a Mormon, I have to admit, if I had grown up in that area of the country where there's a lot of Mormon families, um, I would have rejected Mormonism by now as a critical thinker. Really simply, their scripture, their teachers claim that there were cities that were here. Excuse me, part of my notes are gone. So their, um, their scriptures teach that there were cities right here in the Americas, as they call it, okay, in the continental U.S., like that, like parcel, property, whatever. Um, have you guys ever heard 
of any of those cities that are discussed in their Scripture being unearthed or discovered here in the Americas? Has anybody heard of that? Okay. You haven't, because none of them have been unearthed, okay? So when they dug next door, like way down for this building, did they run into any of those Mormon cities? Have we anywhere? No, we haven't. And so that would be very difficult for me as a critical thinker to believe that these cities existed. However, there isn't any archaeological support. Well, that's not the case when it comes to Scripture. In 1946 and 47, and then later in 56, they found a bunch of scrolls in these Cumern caves, and they were fragments of the Old Testament. And at that point, it was one of those questions like, hey, now we've found these, we can find out if they've changed over the centuries. Certainly, this is going to illustrate that they've been altered. That wasn't the case. They supported the purity of the Old Testament, of those fragments there. And so, that biblical archaeology is just something that's really exciting. They're called the Dead Sea Scrolls. So, Scripture is really unique in its development. It's not the typical one author beginning the story through to the end of the book, but rather it's a collection of literature written over a span of 1,500 years by different authors at different times, written to different audiences, utilizing different genres. We've got letters to churches, poetry, narratives, apocalyptic literature, and it's not all written in chronological order. Each author had their different purposes, but there's a glue that holds all of it together. Together they lay out this consistent flowing description of the story of God and the plan of redemption for humanity. There's this red thread that runs through each and every section and genre, and it's the gospel. That Jesus loved each of us and desires a relationship with us and has made a way possible for us to be reunited reunited, restored, and forgiven by God. Scripture's message is unique. That God would create humanity and that He would then give us this opportunity to choose to be in a relationship with Him or live on our own. That He would pay our death penalty making forgiveness possible to all of us, regardless of background or our socioeconomic status, male, female, all are invited to receive this free gift. It's a unique message and it's powerful. No other religious faith or system teaches that. Hebrews 4.12, for the Word of God is alive and active, sharper than any double-edged sword. It penetrates even to dividing soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It judges the thoughts and attitudes of the heart. Nothing in all creation is hidden from God's sight. Everything is uncovered and laid bare before the eyes of Him to whom we must give an account. Uh, to whom we must give an account. When we spend time in God's Word, it exposes and it fillets us wide open. Not to crush us, but to open us up and heal us, like a heart surgery. So our son Luke had to have surgery recently where they opened up his foot and they inserted screws 
to hold all the foot bones in place while the ligaments were healing around it. So first, they had to open and survey the damage, just like they did for John's shoulder. Open up, survey the damage, and then begin making repairs to begin the healing. God's Word is similar. When we read this, it opens up our current reality. It holds a mirror up to us, and God uses it powerfully to help make progress in our lives. When we allow its authority and power to imprint us, it changes us. Martin Luther put it this way. John shared this quote with me. When the Scripture speaks, God speaks. About 500 years ago during the Reformation, there was this debate that swirled around the the place that Scripture should hold in our lives, and there was this phrase that came out called sola scriptura. And it was a response, and what was happening to the church in general there was where, yeah, there was the Bible, but now all these things had been added to it, and it was getting confusing, and they wanted to say, we need to get back to the source, to Scripture only. It's not about all this extra stuff. We're missing the gospel And that's what we need. And I would have to say that I had kind of a sola scriptura moment about six months after I had become a Christian. I remember I was in my my apartment, and I remember the sun kind of coming through the window, and I was on the top bunk, and my buddy from high school, I had told him about Jesus, and he had become a Christian about two months earlier, and he was in the bottom bunk, and I was looking down at this new Bible that I had. I had just gotten like a Bible, a study Bible, and he had one too. And I was looking down at it, and I was like, Dale, like this is amazing. Like in that book right there that we have all we need for the rest of our lives. And I just felt like we're 21 years old. Like we have no idea no clue on life, no idea what we're doing. And yet, because we have this, like, I almost feel like I have an unfair advantage with life. Like, it was this empowering feeling that I had this ability and knowledge available to live a life of wisdom, like, way beyond my years that I would have access to power beyond what I had imagined and that those words would help me enjoy and rest in my forgiveness for the rest of my life. Like that hit me hard as a 21-year-old. I think God wants us to have that like sola scriptura moment where we say, this is what I need. More than anything else, my relationship with Jesus, and this is the vehicle by which He is going to help change and transform me. Let's pray. God, thank You for Your Word. 
that we have all we need. I know that we buy lies, we have love affairs with all these other little things, and it's really easy to get caught up in worldly stuff. But when it really comes down to it, all we have that's valuable is yours. And so we ask that as a community of those that are trying to follow you, that you would give us our sola scripture a moment where we say, only this, this is the one single thing I really need. You give us wisdom, you give us truth, instruction, correction, training in righteousness, all of this so that we can be thoroughly equipped for life. God, thank you for that. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.